This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. It's November, and we're beginning a new series, Fugitives from Justice. In these episodes, I'll share stories with you of criminals on the run from the law. Whenever I hear one of these stories, I'm always curious to hear the details of how they got away, where they fled to, and how they were able to evade capture for months or even years. I found details on some really fascinating fugitive cases for you this month. First up, a small-time drug dealer in Southern California seeks to take revenge on a rival for money owed. The events that unfold will include a bizarre kidnapping, a murder, and a half a decade on the run. This is the story of Jesse James Hollywood. On Sunday, August 2nd, 2000, three suburban youths were prowling the streets of West Hills, located in Southern California's San Fernando Valley. Jesse Rugi, age 20, was at the wheel of a borrowed cargo van. In the passenger seat was 20-year-old Jesse James Hollywood, a name that sounds like a stage name for a Hollywood stuntman, but Jesse James Hollywood was the name given to him by his parents and listed on his birth certificate. You might think with a name like that, a young man might aspire to gain a reputation to go along with it. And in this case, you'd be right. Along for the ride with Hollywood and Rugi was William Skidmore, also 20. Hollywood, Rugi, and Skidmore had been friends and teammates playing baseball together in the predominantly white upper-middle-class suburb of West Hills. Hollywood's father, Jack, had been a coach for their little league teams. The boys who'd all grown up with privileges of the middle class didn't aspire to college educations, but decided to go another way. Perhaps products of too much time, too little parental supervision, or not enough responsibility, they adopted the trappings and swagger of a more thuggish life. Skidmore claimed to belong to a gang and gave himself the nickname of Capone. Jesse Rugi learned to grow pot from his own father at the age of 13. He dropped out of school and bounced between his father and mother's homes in San Fernando Valley and Santa Barbara, California. Jesse James Hollywood, kicked out of school for insubordination at El Camino Real High School, nevertheless transferred to another school and graduated from Calabasas High in 1998. It was commonly believed that Jack Hollywood was a major player in San Fernando Valley's marijuana distribution and also commonly believed that his son Jesse James had gone into the family business. Jesse James had his own crew who worked for him, and his business had become so profitable that young Hollywood was able to purchase his own home in West Hills, a three-bedroom, two-bath residence for $200,000 when he was just 19 years old. But Hollywood was no drug kingpin, and mostly hired his former teammates and friends to distribute the potent strain of marijuana he bought in one-pound bricks. As a result, his crew often smoked as much or more of the product as they sold, and several of them ended up in debt to Hollywood. For all of his tough swagger, he seemed to be a bit soft on enforcing them to pay up. Instead, he allowed some of his crew to work off their debt and trade, either doing errands, chores, or odd jobs for him around his house. This type of arrangement allowed by Hollywood had culminated into a standoff between himself and another member of his crew named Benjamin Markowitz. It was Markowitz who Hollywood was now cruising the streets looking for in order to settle up the debt. 
While Hollywood commanded respect from some of his crew, Benjamin Markowitz was not one of them. Hollywood's hold over others was his money, his presumed connections, and perhaps even his charm. It seemed that those who knew him liked him and wanted to please him. None of these things, however, seemed to impress Markowitz. Benjamin Markowitz had also grown up in West Hills. He was a couple of years older, but was physically bigger and stronger than Hollywood, who only stood at 5 foot 5 inches tall and was reed thin at 140 pounds. Ben Markowitz was also very tough and very mean, and not just play-acting at it like Hollywood. Markowitz had been a problem child since his early teens. His mother and father had divorced before he was five years old. By the time Ben was 12, his mother could no longer handle him, and he went to live with his father. Jeff Markowitz tried everything he could think of to straighten his son out, from taking him to therapists, enrolling him in martial arts classes, and putting him on medication for his hyperactivity. Nothing seemed to work. Ben had been arrested several times in his teens for vandalism, assault, and other assorted charges, and had spent almost a year in a juvenile probation camp. He had emerged even worse than before, aligning himself with the San Fernando Valley gang with white supremacist leanings, which is odd considering that he was Jewish. Markowitz's father had remarried, and with his new wife Susan had a son, Nicholas. Nicholas was seven years younger than Ben, and he idolized his big brother. Of course, Susan and Jeff were concerned about the bad influence Ben might provide and kept Nick away from Ben as much as possible. Finally, unable to put up with Ben's behavior any longer, his father kicked him out of the house. After that, the family saw him only rarely. However, Ben tended to show up at the worst possible times to create more drama, like the time he crashed Nick's bar mitzvah drunk and insisted on driving his little brother home in a tricked-out lowrider. Ben Markowitz had been a neighbor of the Hollywoods and a friend of Jesse's. He began selling marijuana for him. Ben was not intimidated by Hollywood and easily racked up debt with him instead of earning profits. By the year 2000, Markowitz's disrespect for Hollywood was unchecked, and Hollywood became angry. But Hollywood's text messages to his employee at this time, far from being authoritative, seemed almost wheedling. One read, I thought we were homies. Why don't you come kick it? Let's straighten things out. Ben's replies, in contrast, are more threatening. I know where you live too, buddy, so you make the first move, he wrote. Finally, in February, Hollywood acted, but in a very passive-aggressive way. Markowitz's girlfriend worked as a server at a Woodland Hills restaurant. Hollywood took his girlfriend there for dinner, running up a $50 tab before leaving without paying. Instead, he left a note that said, Take this off Ben's debt. Markowitz reacted angrily, threatening to expose an alleged scam Hollywood was involved in. The allegation was that Hollywood had a customized car that he had chopped up and sold for parts and then reported stolen, extracting $35,000 from his insurance company. The feud continued throughout the summer of 2000, with Markowitz arriving at Hollywood's home in August and busting out some windows with a metal pipe. This was the last straw for Hollywood, and he wanted revenge. Hollywood had already planned to move out of his home and had everything packed up when the windows were broken out by Markowitz. Jack Hollywood would later claim that his son was terrified of Markowitz and was moving to get away from him. However, on August 6th, Hollywood was on the hunt for Markowitz. On that Sunday afternoon, they didn't catch sight of Ben, but around noon saw his younger brother Nick, walking in the neighborhood. 
at that moment, he would make a decision that would change the lives of at least a dozen people from that day forward. Just before 1 p.m. on Sunday, August 6th, Nicholas Markowitz was walking the streets of West Hills near Taxco Trails Park. Nick was a good-looking, dark-haired boy who performed in high school productions and volunteered as a peer counselor. But at 15, he'd begun partying a bit and had recently been caught in school with marijuana and arrested. He was a regular marijuana smoker, and more dangerous still, he'd begun popping prescription pills frequently, mostly Valiums. That Saturday night, Nick had been out with friends and gotten high. When he returned home in the early morning hours, he knew he was in for a lecture from his parents. So instead of sticking around for it, he'd snuck out of the house before his mother Susan had a chance to speak to him. He was now walking alone through West Hills when a cargo van pulled up beside him. Jesse James Hollywood jumped out and grabbed the boy before he knew what was happening. Pinning him up against a tree, Hollywood began yelling in his face, Where's your brother? Will Skidmore also exited the van and now came up behind Hollywood and punched Nick in the stomach. Nick fell, and Will and Jesse began punching and kicking him. Then, in broad daylight, they grabbed Nick and threw him inside the van. Unbeknownst to them, the attack and abduction were witnessed by a woman returning home from church with her children. Pauline Ann Mahoney was present from the time the van pulled up beside Nick until it peeled away from the curb after he'd been forced inside. Mahoney had her kids recite the van's license plate number until she reached her home and called 911. She told the operator that she'd seen four boys beating and kidnapping a fifth. All of them were white, and she described the van and the boys she'd seen and provided the license plate number. A second unnamed witness also called in a kidnapping, but Mahoney's detailed report was coded by the 911 operator as an assault, not a kidnapping. Because of this, the officer who responded to the call didn't take it as seriously as he might have, not even taking a direct report from the witness, but only speaking with her briefly over the phone. The license plate number was traced back to John Roberts, who was a family friend of the Hollywoods. However, the police were unable to contact Roberts as they misread the address provided through DMV records. If the 911 operator or police had been more careful and done their jobs more thoroughly, the fate of Nick Markowitz may have turned out very differently but there would be several other opportunities to save young Nick over the next 72 hours. And this is where this story takes a decidedly bizarre turn. After assaulting Nick and throwing him into the van, Jesse James Hollywood and his crew now had to figure out what to do with him. Hollywood's initial idea, however spontaneous it might have been, was to hold Nick hostage until his older brother, Ben Markowitz, made good on his debt. Reportedly, Markowitz owed Hollywood a whopping 1200 bucks. Hollywood had initially planned to drive to Santa Barbara to attend a festival that weekend. Now with Nick held hostage, they drove for an hour to reach the coastal town anyway. On the drive there, Nick's pager began to go off. His mother had begun paging him over and over when she discovered that he had left the house. Hollywood confiscated Nick's pager and turned it off. He then searched through the rest of Nick's pockets and found a baggie of weed and some Valium. He allowed his captive to smoke a joint and pop some pills on the drive. Hollywood spent the rest of this time making threats against Ben Markowitz, but oddly, he would never call Ben, 
not that day or ever again. Once they arrived in Santa Barbara, Jesse Rugi, the driver, contacted a friend named Ricky Hoflinger. Ricky told Jesse to come on by and was surprised when a van full of guys arrived who quickly led a younger boy into the back bedroom. Someone tied Nick's wrists together with duct tape and blindfolded him. Ricky asked what was going on, to which Rugi responded, Hollywood is tripping out. Ricky had a friend over at the time, and they both decided to leave, not wanting to get involved in whatever this was. A little while later, Will Skidmore was told by Hollywood to leave in the van and return it to the owner, John Roberts, who lived in West Hills. After a while, Hollywood left too, calling someone to give him a ride back to Los Angeles. Now Nick was left alone with Rugi. By this time, Nick's bindings had been removed. He also seemed to harbor no ill feelings towards his captors. What caused this turn in events can only be speculated. I can only imagine that perhaps Hollywood used his charm to assure Nick that he would not be harmed and they only needed him to get in touch with his brother to straighten everything out. It seems that Nick started to believe that he was in no danger and even that he was helping his brother resolve this conflict in some way. Perhaps it was because he idolized his older brother Ben and also wanted to feel like one of the guys, that he went along with Hollywood and his crew. Rugi and Nick spent the rest of the afternoon together in Rick's house, playing video games, smoking weed, and drinking gin. As it began to grow dark, Rugi took Nick with him to his father's home, located just down the road from Ricky's. Both Rugi's father and stepmother were home, and saw Nick with their son, but they never questioned who he was or why he was spending the night. The next day, another member of Hollywood's crew, named Graham Presley, arrived at Rugi's house with two teenage girls, 17-year-old Natasha Adams-Young and 16-year-old Kelly Carpenter. Natasha would later report that they hung out with Nick and watched TV, snacked, and smoked weed. To them, Nick didn't seem nervous or tense at all. Later in the day, the gang all made their way to Natasha's house, she began talking with Nick and found out that he'd been taken to Santa Barbara against his will. He told Natasha that it was okay because he was helping his brother and that's why he was going along with the whole thing. She noticed some scrapes on him from the beating he'd taken by the other guys and helped him to clean and bandage them. Later that day, Rugi left for a while and Nick was left alone with the girls and Graham Presley. Now all of his abductors were gone, but Nick still stayed. Why, we might wonder. Someone later claimed that he was not afraid and was even enjoying himself, and that might partially be true. But it might also be true that he believed his brother would be in danger of retaliation by the gang if he left. That evening, Natasha drove everyone back to Rugi's house, including Nick. Hollywood had returned and was accompanied now by his girlfriend, Michelle Lasher. The next morning, Nick was still in Santa Barbara. It had been three days, and his parents had been frantically searching for him. Once he didn't answer his pages, Susan Markowitz said she knew something was wrong. At first, his parents thought he might have left with his brother, Ben. They called all of Nick's friends and everyone else they could think of, but no one had seen him. They tried to get a hold of Ben, but didn't reach him until Nick had already been gone for 36 hours. When they discovered that Nick wasn't with his big brother, their hearts sank. It was then on Tuesday, August 8th, that the Markowitzes called the police to report Nick missing. (music) 
That same Tuesday, after Natasha returned home, she decided to talk to her mother about Nick. Something wasn't sitting right with her, and she was worried about the boy. He told her he was 17, but he seemed much younger. He was. And she was alarmed at what he told her about being forced to go to Santa Barbara with Hollywood and his crew. Her mother happened to be a criminal defense attorney, and while Natasha didn't want to get anyone in trouble, she felt she needed to get some legal advice. Without giving anyone's names, she generally laid out the situation as she knew it to her mom. Not surprisingly, her mother encouraged her to contact the police. Before she did anything, however, Natasha wanted to make sure Nick was really in danger. He hadn't seemed that concerned and had told her that he was sure he would be going home soon. Natasha first called Graham Presley to ask him what he knew. Presley assured her that Nick was fine, but also cautioned her to leave it alone. He said Jesse James Hollywood was dangerous, describing him as crazy. She then talked to Jesse Rugi, who told her it was all good and swore to her that he was planning to take Nick home. He had said the same to Nick himself, telling him he would give him money and drop him off at the bus or train station later that night. But first the crew decided to throw a party. Graham Presley called his mother Christina around 5 p.m. and asked her to pick up him and his friends. They needed a ride to the Lemon Tree Inn on State Street. A motel room had been rented for a planned pool party. Graham's mother only knew her son's friends peripherally and had never seen Nick before. But as she dropped them off at the motel, Nick, always a polite young man, thanked her for the ride. She didn't see anything unusual about the situation and went along her way. About a dozen people attended the pool party at the Lemon Tree Inn. Besides Graham Presley, Jesse Rugi, and some other guys from Hollywood's Santa Barbara crew were some girls the other guys had invited to come and swim, smoke pot, and drink. Nick joined in the party drinking and even swimming in the pool. At this point, pretty much everyone knew that he was Jesse James Hollywood's hostage and asked him why he didn't just leave. Again, he seemed unconcerned and said he was going home soon and didn't want to complicate things. Besides, everyone later reported, Nick seemed to be having a good time. But while Nick might have been unconcerned, Hollywood was concerned, very concerned. He knew it had been stupid to take Nick by force, but later would say it had been a spontaneous and spur-of-the-moment decision. He'd only worried about the implications afterwards. Hollywood had not made good on his threat to hold Nick to make Ben Markowitz pay up. As a matter of fact, he never called Ben at all. But what if he let the boy go and he told his brother or went to the cops, Hollywood speculated. He decided to seek counsel from a family friend, Stephen Hogg. Hogg lived in Simi Valley and was an attorney. He'd been hired by the Hollywoods for various legal issues, including representing Jesse on two criminal charges, possession of alcohol by a minor, and resisting arrest. Hollywood went to Hogg's home and, without admitting his own involvement, told Hogg that some friends of his were holding a boy hostage. Hogg told him he should report it to the police. He then asked the attorney what kind of trouble they could be in if he did. Hogg responded that if a ransom was demanded for the boy's return, they could be looking at a life sentence behind bars. Upon hearing this, Hollywood became so spooked that he ran from Hogg's home. Hogg tried calling and paging him but got no answer. What is probable is that Hollywood, upon hearing the serious charges he could be facing for kidnapping Nick Markowitz, called his father to ask him what he should do. Jack Hollywood then called the attorney. 
He was out of town at the time and asked Tog to keep trying to reach his son, and if he returned, told him to keep him there. In the meantime, he told the attorney to call his friend John Roberts. John Roberts had been a close friend of Jack Hollywood's and was like a godfather to Jesse. It had been Robert's cargo van that he had borrowed to take to Santa Barbara. It was alleged that Roberts had ties to Chicago mobsters, having grown up in a rough section of that city. After the attorney contacted Roberts, Roberts assured him that he would find out where the kid had been taken and resolve the situation. He planned to give Nick some money to keep his mouth shut, while at the same time, putting the fear of God into him to make good and damn sure he would do so. But first, he needed to talk to Jesse James to learn where the boy was being held. But Hollywood had a plan of his own. He decided to hire his own fixer to take care of the problem. Ryan Hoyt was another guy who worked for Hollywood and owed him money. Hoyt had been working all summer at Hollywood's house on renovation projects. He'd been left behind the day that Nick was abducted from West Hills to clean up the broken windows Ben Markowitz had busted out. Now Hollywood returned to West Hills to talk to Hoyt. Hoyt had had a difficult upbringing, not as privileged as the rest of the crew, and he'd been somewhat adopted by the Hollywood family as a teen. To escape his own dysfunctional home consisting of a mentally ill mother, an abusive father, and two siblings involved with drugs and crime, he'd hung out at Jesse James' house, helping out by babysitting and doing chores for his mother. Hollywood had purchased Hoyt a second-hand car for his birthday, but he never registered it in his own name. He then racked up over $1,000 in parking tickets that Hollywood had to pay for, as he was still listed as the legal owner. He had also given Hoyt a half pound of marijuana to sell to help pay off his debt, but Hoyt had ended up blowing that opportunity as well. So he'd been working for Hollywood for months to work off his debt by doing odd jobs. By August 8th, when Hollywood requested his help for the last time, Hoyt claims he'd whittled his debt down to only $200. Even so, he was loyal to Hollywood and would do whatever he asked. And what Hollywood asked was for Hoyt to, quote, clean up a mess for him. He explained the situation and, according to Hoyt, told him that Nick Markowitz had to be made to disappear. Previously, Hoyt had been given assignments like sanding a hardwood floor or giving Hollywood's two pit bulls a bath. Asking him to commit a murder, you might think, would have been a bit of a stretch. But Hoyt was encouraged by Hollywood's trust in him for such a serious assignment. To him, it proved that, at last, Hollywood respected him and might finally consider him a serious player in his crew. Hoyt told him that he was ready to do whatever he needed. Later, according to detectives, Hollywood gave him a duffel bag containing a weapon called a Tech DC-9. The weapon had been modified into a fully automated assault rifle. He then sent Hoyt to the Lemon Tree Inn. As Hoyt made the hour-long drive, Hollywood called Rugi at the hotel. What he said exactly is unknown. Another friend of Hollywood's would later testify that Hollywood said, quote, the thing with Nick is being taken care of, unquote. Hollywood then took his girlfriend Michelle to Outback Steakhouse to celebrate her 20th birthday. About 11 p.m., Jesse Rugi ended the party at the Lemon Tree Inn. He told everyone it was time to leave and that someone was coming to pick up Nick and they were clearing out of the room. Hoyt arrived shortly afterwards and the only ones left at the motel were Nick, Rugi, and Graham Presley. It seems that there was already a plan of sorts in place. Hoyt and Presley were not acquainted with one another 
but they left the lemon tree together, driving up the Santa Barbara hills on a long, winding, one-lane road. Presley was directing the way, as Hoyt had never been to the area. They pulled over after a dozen miles or so, and they then set off on foot. Presley led them through the brush to a spot that was well-known to Santa Barbara-area teens. A large rock stood in a clearing that was known as Lizard's Mouth, because it had a large hole in the center of it. Teens had long used this hideaway as a place to drink and smoke dope, and Presley knew it well. They had brought along a shovel and a shallow hole was dug in the dirt. It was hard-packed earth, and they were only able to dig about a foot or two down before tiring and returning to the car. They drove back to the motel and picked up Rugi and Nick. Up until that time, Nick still believed he was going home. It is unknown when he came to the realization that the plan had changed, if indeed that had ever been the plan at all. Nick was driven up the winding road and at some point had his hands duct tape behind him and tape also placed over his mouth. When they reached Lizard's mouth, Graham Presley stayed in the car, while Ryan Hoyt and Jesse Rugi led Nick to the boulder. Hoyt hit Nick over the head with the shovel and pushed him into the shallow grave. He then pointed the Tech-9 at the boy and squeezed off a round. Nine bullets hit Nick in his torso, neck, and chin. They pushed the body the rest of the way into the hole and placed the gun under his legs. They tried covering the body with dirt, but the hole they had dug was too shallow. Instead, they piled some branches and brush on top and left. It was just after midnight, and now it was August 9th. The day after Ryan Hoyt shot and killed 15-year-old Nicholas Markowitz and pushed his dead body into a shallow grave, he met Jesse James Hollywood back in West Hills and was given $400. Hoyt then went shopping. The next day would be his 21st birthday, and he wanted some new clothes for his birthday party. Graham Presley also returned home that Tuesday. His mother later described him as pale and sickly-looking. Graham called Natasha, the nice girl who had been concerned about Nick Markowitz and whom he'd assured her would be returned home unharmed. He now lied to Natasha, telling her that he'd dropped Nick off at his home the night before. She was relieved. On August 10th, Ryan Hoyt celebrated his 21st birthday, drinking and getting high with friends. While under the influence, he confessed his involvement in Nick Markowitz's murder to his friend Casey Sheehan. Hoyt didn't seem very upset about it, though, so Sheehan didn't really take him seriously. However, he decided to confront Jesse James Hollywood about what he'd heard. Jesse was also attending the party. He told him, don't worry about it. Then on Saturday, August 12th, almost one week after Nick Markowitz had gone missing from West Hills, hikers discovered a body near Lizard's Mouth. The place where Nick had been hastily buried was close to a popular hiking trail, and the temperatures had reached over 100 degrees Fahrenheit, leading to a quick decomposition of the body. The smell had alerted them to the area. They quickly called the police. Due to its condition, it took two days for the body to be identified as Nick Markowitz. His parents were shocked and horrified to learn that their boy, their sweet child, had been brutally murdered. On August 15th, it was reported in the news that a body had been found in Santa Barbara County and identified as Nicholas Markowitz, 
who'd been missing since August 6th. Natasha Adams Young saw the newspaper article with Nick's picture and realized the murder victim was the nice young boy she had met in Santa Barbara. She realized now that her friends had lied to her about taking Nick home unharmed. She and her mother contacted an attorney who worked at a deal offering Natasha immunity in exchange for telling the police what she knew. The next day, Jesse Ruge, Graham Presley, and Will Skidmore were arrested. They all confessed and identified Ryan Hoyt as the shooter. He was arrested soon afterwards. But the ringleader, Jesse James Hollywood, had vanished. Although Jesse James Hollywood was nowhere to be found, he was indicted by a grand jury in Santa Barbara County and charged with one count of murder. By August 11th, Hollywood had wrapped up his business and left town. Most of the contents of his home had already been packed up, and he'd signed papers to put his home on the market while Nick was still in Santa Barbara with his kidnappers. He also leased or purchased a Lincoln Town car. Accounts differ. In addition, he began collecting on overdue debts and withdrew over $20,000 in cash from a bank account. He and Michelle then packed their belongings into the town car and drove to Las Vegas. The couple spent one night at the Bellagio Hotel before leaving the next day for Colorado Springs. Before leaving the state, Hollywood called his father. Jack Hollywood then called another family friend, Richard Dispenza, to inform him that his son was headed his way. Jesse and Michelle stayed one night with Dispenza in Colorado. On the same day, all his friends were being arrested for murder in California. Hollywood then purchased Michelle a ticket to fly home and checked into a Ramada Inn, where he remained until August 20th. On that day, he called Dispenza from a payphone near the motel and was told that the police had already been by looking for him. Hollywood was too afraid of being caught to even return to the motel. Instead, he walked a few blocks away to the home of an old friend from high school, Chaz Salisbury. He told Chaz that he was caught up in a serious charge. A boy had been shot but Hollywood claimed that his friends had done it and that he wasn't responsible. He also told Salisbury that he wanted to return to Las Vegas, but it was too dangerous to rent a car or purchase a plane ticket. His name had already been broadcast on news reports. He offered Salisbury $3,000 to drive him back to Las Vegas. He accepted. Once they reached Las Vegas, Hollywood consulted another attorney who told him that the prosecutor could seek the death penalty against him once he was caught. Jesse panicked and talked Salisbury into taking him on to Los Angeles. He arrived in L.A. on August 24th. Jesse then asked to be taken to John Roberts' home, where Salisbury dropped him off, promising to return later. He never did, leaving Hollywood stranded and minus $8,000 that he'd stashed in the car. Roberts was happy to see Jesse, but when he was asked for help obtaining a fake ID, Roberts refused. He urged Jesse to turn himself in, but finally agreed to lend him some money, handing him an envelope containing $10,000 in cash. It seems Hollywood had friends everywhere. Investigators would later say that Jack Hollywood was calling in favors and was in touch with his son through a sort of underground network. A hideout was secured for Jesse. He stayed in a trailer home owned by another friend in the Mojave Desert, living there for two weeks. During this time, he continued to follow the news of the manhunt that was underway 
to bring him in on the murder charge. He was also featured on the television show America's Most Wanted. He was finally able to secure a false ID and made his way to Los Angeles International Airport, where he caught a flight to Seattle, Washington. After two weeks in Seattle, Hollywood paid $2,000 to be smuggled by boat into Canada. Once in that country, he bounced around for six months, staying briefly in Quebec, Calgary, Montreal, and Vancouver. In Quebec, he was able to secure a passport in a different name that allowed him to stay up to five years in Brazil, his next stop. Jesse James Hollywood was one of America's most wanted fugitives after a warrant was issued charging him with unlawful flight to avoid prosecution. He was featured on America's Most Wanted twice and also on Unsolved Mysteries and landed on the FBI's 10 Most Wanted list. He would not be seen again for five years. Meanwhile, trials were being held for the members of his crew implicated in the murder of Nicholas Markowitz. Ryan Hoyt, who'd been the shooter, was tried in 2001. He was convicted of first-degree murder, and on December 9, 2001, he was sentenced to death and sent to San Quentin's death row. Jesse Ruge, who'd been present at the time of Nick's abduction and had stayed with him during most of his time in Santa Barbara, was charged with aiding in his kidnap and murder. In 2002, he was convicted and sentenced to life in prison with the possibility for parole. He was denied parole in 2006, but it was granted on his next petition. He was released in October 2013. William Skidmore, who tried to bow out after assisting in Nick's kidnapping, was charged with kidnapping and robbery. In 2002, he was sentenced to nine years in prison as part of a plea bargain. He was released in April of 2009. Graham Presley was only 17 when Nick Markowitz was killed. In 2002, he was acquitted of kidnapping, and the jury hung on his second-degree murder charge. He was tried again and convicted of second-degree murder in late 2002. He was sent to a California Youth Authority facility. He was sentenced to remain there until his 25th birthday and has since been released. Ben Markowitz was devastated over the loss of his brother and blamed himself for putting him in danger. Susan Markowitz ended up hospitalized a number of times and attempted suicide more than once after the murder of her son. The only thing that kept her going some days was her need to see Jesse James Hollywood brought to justice. A reward of $50,000 was issued for information leading to Hollywood's capture. Two years after the murder, police got a tip that Hollywood was in Brazil. However, it took time to pinpoint where he was hiding and to work with Brazilian authorities to have him return to the U.S. once he was located and arrested. Hollywood had entered Brazil with a fake passport using the name Michael Costa Giroux by way of Canada. He first landed in Rio de Janeiro and worked odd jobs, including passing out flyers for a local bar. Jesse James Hollywood, he of the unforgettable name and photogenic face, had had his picture broadcast all over the world as a wanted fugitive. Featured several times on America's Most Wanted, it was only a matter of time before someone recognized him. In 2002, an agent with the Brazilian Federal Police sent video footage of Hollywood taken in Rio. Acting on a tip that Hollywood was hiding out at a monastery, of all places, 
Police arrived and conducted a search, but he was not found. The FBI had been monitoring Jack Hollywood's telephone conversations back in the States. Jack Hollywood was in contact with his son, and investigators discovered that he was sending him funds every month, the equivalent of $1,200 U.S. to provide for his living expenses while in hiding. One of these phone calls provided a tip that Hollywood had moved to the Ituana Beach area located in Saquarema and was living in a small house on the beach. The neighbors called him Miguel. He spoke some Portuguese and didn't speak to anyone in the neighborhood much, but kept a low profile. He visited local bars regularly. Sometimes when he was drinking, he'd start talking, and it didn't take much to get him angry. He got into a few bar fights. Jesse James met a woman at a singles bar, and they began a relationship. Marcia Reese was Brazilian, spoke only Portuguese, and was 10 years his senior. He told her he was in Brazil to study and was working as an English tutor. Marcia moved in with the man she knew as Mike, and in late 2004, she became pregnant. Everything was going well for the couple. Marcia said her boyfriend was good to her and always treated her well. Neighbors recalled that sometimes out-of-town guests, Americans, would arrive and the couple would throw a barbecue, with the party continuing late into the night. In March 2005, a woman called their home. Mike told her it was a cousin of his who was traveling to Brazil, and they made plans to meet up for a visit. On March 8th, Hollywood and his girlfriend were waiting for her arrival in a local cafe. But the woman who showed up was not a family member, but a Brazilian federal agent named Kelly Bernardo. She had been working in conjunction with the FBI to capture the fugitive. When Hollywood was told that he was under arrest, he continued to insist that his name was Michael Giraud. Marcia pleaded with the police not to take him because she was pregnant with his child. Authorities would speculate that Hollywood had an ulterior motive for fathering a child in Brazil. Many criminals had used this legal loophole to fight extradition. There was a Brazilian law stating that a father of a child born in Brazil could not be extradited. However, by the time of Hollywood's arrest, the law had been changed. Furthermore, he had illegally entered the country using a falsified passport, which would have made him eligible for deportation either way. He was immediately turned over to the custody of FBI agents and sent back to Los Angeles on March 10th to answer to the charges of kidnapping and first-degree murder. Jesse James Hollywood's trial began on May 15, 2009. Many people testified, including the woman who witnessed the kidnapping, the people who'd seen Nick Markowitz with Hollywood and Jesse Ruge in Santa Barbara, and the dozens of people who'd seen him at the Lemon Tree Inn. Graham Presley took the stand and offered the most damning testimony of the trial. He said that Jesse Ruge told him Hollywood had offered him $2,000 to kill Nick Markowitz. According to Presley, Ruge had refused and described Hollywood as, quote, crazy, unquote. Hollywood himself took the stand for four days of questioning. He admitted that he'd taken part in kidnapping Nick Markowitz because he was angry over the windows he believed Ben Markowitz had destroyed at his house. But he denied that he'd taken part in, or even been aware of, the murder until after the fact. He said that Nick wasn't in any danger when he left him with Jesse Ruge in Santa Barbara on August 6th. He was playing video games and seemed fine, Hollywood said. However, he didn't explain why he hadn't returned Nick home that night 
when he himself had returned to West Hills. Hollywood said that he came back to Santa Barbara the next day to pick up $500 Ruggie had collected for him. At that time, he claimed, he had asked Nick if he wanted to go home, to which the boy said, quote, no, I'm cool, unquote. Again, Hollywood said he didn't believe the boy was in any danger. His defense attorney would say that Hollywood's responsibility for the boy, in effect, ended after the last time he saw Nick in Santa Barbara. But if he truly believed there was no longer a problem, the prosecution asked, why then did he spend the next two days withdrawing large sums of money from his account, signing papers to give a family member permission to sell his home, and collecting on debts owed to him? Also, if he wasn't worried, why did he visit his lawyer Stephen Hogg to ask his advice? Hollywood would also testify that he wasn't aware Nick Markowitz had been killed until two days after the murder when he found out about it at Ryan Hoyt's birthday party. He claimed that Hoyt had called him the day before and told him that he'd driven Jesse Ruge back to his mother's house and also taken Nick home. He said that later, after Hoyt told him that he and Ruge had, quote, messed up and killed Nick and buried his body, he panicked and had fled the country. He denied that he'd ever offered to pay Ruge to kill the boy. Ryan Hoyt did not testify, so his version of events was not heard at trial. But this also doesn't make sense. Why would Ryan Hoyt kill Nick Markowitz of his own accord? Either, number one, he did so at the request or demand of Hollywood, either for payment or to pay off his debt, or, number two, he did so to gain favor with Hollywood. And if he did it to impress Hollywood, then why would he lie to him after the deed was done and tell him that he'd taken the boy home, only to confess the next day to, quote, messing up, unquote, and committing the murder. Chaz Salisbury, Hollywood's friend from Colorado, who had spent a couple of days transporting Hollywood to Las Vegas and then back to Los Angeles, also testified. He was able to give details of the murder that he said came from Jesse. But Hollywood had claimed not to know much at all about how the murder went down since he, quote, wasn't involved. Finally, regarding the weapon that was used to murder Nick Markowitz, Hollywood testified that he had given it to Ryan Hoyt months before the murder, and it had been stored at Hoyt's grandparents' house for almost a year. But more than one witness, including his former teenage girlfriend, Michelle Lasher, who testified that she was still in love with Hollywood and considered herself a hostile witness, said that they had seen the weapon in Hollywood's possession shortly before the murder. To sum things up, the majority of Hollywood's defense was that all the witnesses had lied and he was the only one telling the truth. The jury didn't buy it. On July 8, 2009, he was found guilty of kidnapping and first-degree murder with special circumstances. He was eligible for the death penalty. On July 15, his sentence was handed down. The jury recommended the sentence of life in prison. He appealed the sentence, but it was upheld by the court in 2010. Nicholas Markowitz's family filed a civil lawsuit against several people, including the kidnappers and Nick's murderer, Ryan Hoyt, John Roberts, whose van was used in the kidnapping, the owners of the homes where Nick had been held captive in Santa Barbara, and the Lemon Tree Inn. They won a judgment of $11.2 million in 2003. Marcia Reese gave birth to Jesse James Hollywood's son in July of 2005. She named him John Paul Hollywood Reese, saying she chose the name John Paul in memory of Pope John Paul II, 
She said she wanted to name her son after a good man, not after an outlaw like Jesse James. Although I noticed she kept the name Hollywood. Jack Hollywood was arrested on the same day his son was captured in Brazil. He was charged with the manufacture of the illegal narcotic, GHB. The charge would later be thrown out of court, but he still had to serve a sentence for an outstanding 2002 marijuana charge. He spent 18 months in prison. In 2013, Jesse James Hollywood began corresponding with a Northern California woman named Melinda Enos. She told him that she had read about his case and thought he'd received a raw deal and believed in his innocence. They began corresponding, and in January of 2014, they married. Originally from Oakland, Enos moved to Orange County to be closer to her new husband, who was serving his sentence of life without the possibility of parole at Calipatria State Prison in Imperial County, close to the California-Mexico border. It's the first marriage for both of them. Enos, who declined to give her age, married the 34-year-old Hollywood in the prison's visitor's room. I first read about this case many years ago in an excellent article written by Jesse Katz for Los Angeles Magazine. Titled, The Last Ride of Jesse James Hollywood, it gives many details of the kidnapping and murder of Nicholas Markowitz, some of which I've included in this episode. It was written while Hollywood was still a fugitive. Another resource I'll direct you to is a movie titled Alpha Dog, released in 2007 and directed by Nick Cassavetes. It's a work of fiction based on this case and starred Emil Hirsch as Johnny Truelove, based on Jesse James Hollywood, Justin Timberlake as Frankie Nuts Ballenbacher, based on Jesse Rugi, Sharon Stone, whose character is based on Susan Markowitz, and Bruce Willis as Johnny's father, based on Jack Hollywood. The Markowitz family and the Santa Barbara County District Attorney's Office were consultants on the film. At the time of its production, Jesse James Hollywood was still a fugitive, and they hoped that the publicity from the movie might help bring him to justice. However, Hollywood was caught before the movie's release in 2007. Friends later reported that while in custody awaiting his trial, Hollywood began signing his letters, Alpha Dog. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. I'd love for you to follow the show on my social media pages. Help us reach our goal of 10,000 Twitter followers by the end of 2019 by following me at Upon a Crime. And we only have a short way to go to reach 5,000 followers on Instagram at Once Upon a Crime Pod. We may even have prizes for some of you who help us reach that goal. Join us on Facebook at Once Upon a Crime Pod and on our Facebook fan group page where you can post links to true crime news, funny memes, cute pet pics, and more. Join us! If you want to support the show by kicking a couple of bucks a month to our Patreon page, you'll get bonus content, ad-free episodes, merchandise, and more. Go to patreon.com slash onceuponacrime to become a patron. Thanks! Finally, I want to give a special shout-out to Ms. Owens and Mr. Miguel and their students at Gunn High School in Palo Alto, California. They invited me to come and speak about podcasting, and it was so much fun. I wish them all the best of luck producing their own podcasts. Very cool. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. My administrative assistant is Lorena Garcia. Until next time, be good to one another. Music.
Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.